The grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all again. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, we're going to be studying Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 26. And uh, this is a wonderful passage that uh, demonstrates the power of Jesus Christ, one to cleanse a leper, and then another occasion where he heals a paralytic. And uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 12 to 26. Uh, when I was studying at the College of Biblical Studies here in Houston, uh, I remember I had to pick an elective for one semester to fulfill the program's requirements. And as I was going down the list of classes, I, uh, my eye was caught this one class called the uh, Philosophy and Theology of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. And uh, I was pretty intrigued by that because although I had not been familiar with their writings, uh, I did see some of their movies, right? I, I, real popular movies. Um, I think uh, everyone knows the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, uh, The Witch in the Wardrobe, and I had also seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Right? Great movies, I loved them both. Um, and obviously, it was pretty obvious that when to watch the Chronicles of Narnia, there are some huge biblical undertones. Uh, Aslan representing Christ, you see atonement, redemption, uh, you see all these things that, are, uh, that the, Bib the Bible tells us about, right? And you see these undertones in the movie. Um, and it was in this philosophy class that I was introduced to Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. And uh, I was kind of intrigued by the title of the book, Mere Christianity. I, I, I had understood the word mere to mean nothing better than, right? And so I was kind of asking, why did Lewis call this book Mere Christianity? And it was pretty obvious that uh, I, was, I was reading this book, uh, he was talking about the fundamentals of Christianity, that which is basic and most fundamental that unites Christians from all around the world. And I had come upon this chapter uh, titled The Shocking Alternative. And in this chapter, uh, Lewis, uh, he, he, he presents Christ as either liar, lunatic, or Lord. You have these options as to who do you say that Jesus is. Uh, he's, he's providing his opinion about Jesus' claim to being God. And Lewis stated how it was his goal to clear up any thinking that would mislead people to say, well, I believe in Jesus, right? I believe he was a good moral teacher. But I, I just can't accept that he was God. And I don't think that's what he really meant. So that's what he was trying to um, attack. That's what he was trying to clear up. And I, I've, I've heard people say that. Have you heard anybody say that before? Um, I've heard people of other faiths, especially of other faiths, whether they were Hindu or Buddhist, they might have said he was a good guru, a good teacher, but nothing more. Well, C.S. Lewis addresses that. He says, uh, there's no way we could call him a good teacher if he wasn't God. No way. Uh, if he was lying about being God, then we can't call him good. Because think of the repercussions that come along with him declaring to himself to be God. All the people who followed him, all the people who believed in his deity, all the people who died for the deity of Jesus Christ. And so, no, we can't call him good if he was lying. And if he was a lunatic, then he's just not worth believing in, much less to be worshipped. But, but if it's true that Jesus is God, then we have a huge question to answer is, what do we do with that? Do we believe that he's Jesus, or do we deny it? And this is a basic or fundamental doctrine of our faith. 
But how do we show this? How do we prove this biblically that Jesus is God? In the opening chapters of Luke, we see that Luke presents Jesus' humanity quite clearly. Uh, he was conceived of the Virgin Mary. He was man. He grew up in strength. He grew up in knowledge. He ate. He was tired. We see these things very clearly, and we see his humanity very clearly. But in Luke chapter 5, verses 12 to 26, it is very clear that Jesus is claiming for himself what we call divine prerogatives. What is a prerogative? It is a privilege or a right that belongs only to a certain class. And we're attaching that word divine, that Jesus is able to practice divine rights, divine privileges. It is here where we have our doctrine, vere homo, vere deus, Truly, God, truly man, truly God. How do we see this in Luke 5? Well, we see that Jesus has divine will. He exercises will that belongs only to God in being willing to cleanse a leper. And he also shows us divine ability to forgive sins. And also, we see how Luke describes to us in this one chapter from 12 to 26, divine unity among the trinity okay so i'm going to ask that we go to the lord and seek his help as we study this chapter i invite you to pray with me almighty father we are so grateful that you have brought us here that we might examine your word and father we ask that you would shine upon us the light of illumination that we might see the truths of scripture that we might know you well and that we might love you well Help us, O oh God, in our weaknesses, that the strength of Christ might be seen. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. And so Luke begins by writing in verses 12 through 16 of the divine will of Jesus Christ. We start off in reading in verses 12 through 16. While he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he ordered him to tell no one, but to, show, but to go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But the news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and to pray. Uh, this short section is, is so rich. It's very rich, and I'm so excited to tell you and to share uh, our, my thoughts on this. Uh, let's first take into consideration the socio-religious effects of leprosy. What does it mean to be a leper in first century uh, Palestine? Uh, Leviticus 13 describes to us various skin diseases. And these skin diseases range in symptoms uh, as simple as psoriasis or, or uh, eczema. And even uh, the serious as that disease known today as Hansen's disease, where the skin can become deformed. And there were societal effects uh, when you contracted leprosy. It was required by the law of Moses to be quarantined. But this quarantine was not in one's home. 
the quarantine was to be outside of the town or village where the leper lived. So he was excluded from the community. And we even see when Miriam had received leprosy, Aaron described her to be as dead. And this description of living dead people is confirmed by Josephus when he wrote in Antiquities that the Jews uh, saw lepers to be repugnant, and they were ostracized from the community, and they were seen as dead people. Not that they were actually literally dead, but they were seen as dead people. Um, and on a social level, leper, lepers were really just ostracized. They were, uh, they were repugnant to the people. And also ceremonially, they were considered to be unclean. They were required to go around. If they were to come into contact with people, they were supposed to cover their mouth and cry out unclean to warn people of the leprosy, their skin disease. They were not granted access to the temple, so they had no right to worship God in the temple. And not only that, to add insult into injury, most of the cases in the Old Testament, not all of them, but most of them, were seen as judgments of God. Uh, we have Miriam, who murmured against Aaron. We have Gehazi. We have Joab. We have Isaiah. All of these received leprosy as judgment from God. So you can imagine that the leper in Luke's narrative was not looked upon favorably. He was ostracized uh, and was forbidden to associate with the community of faith, the covenant people of God. And they were unable, he was unable to participate in the temple worship of God. And for an Israelite, a first century Jew, this is about as bad as it gets. This is one of the worst of the worst that could happen to you. But this leper did something extraordinary. This man whom Luke's described to be covered with leprosy, in other words, he was in an advanced stages of leprosy, approaches Jesus. And as he is approaching Jesus, he falls on his face and he implores, he begs of the Lord by saying, Jesus, if you are willing, you can heal me, you can cleanse me. And on the surface, it appears as if this leper breaks the law of Moses. How? He doesn't warn Jesus that he's contaminated. He doesn't cover his mouth. He doesn't cry out, unclean, unclean. He doesn't do that. He understands that he is, but he goes to Jesus with faith, knowing that Jesus is able to cleanse him. And instead of Jesus rebuking this leper, as he could have, he doesn't do that. He has compassion on this leper. And it's here where we see that the leper has a collision with grace, a collision with Jesus Christ and his compassion. And instead of rebuking this leper, he tells the leper, I am willing, be cleansed. And th what's interesting about this, my friends, is that this is something that's unseen throughout all Scripture. No one of their own will is able to heal. No one of their own ability and will is able to make one clean. Not even Elisha, when he met Naaman, and he told them to dip into the river seven times to be cleansed. That was not of his own authority. That was not of his own will or power. He acted under the authority of Yahweh. That's how it was done. But that's not how Jesus does it. He does it of his own will, of his own authority, and of his own power. 
And the narrative with now cleansed leper concludes with Jesus telling him to go to the priests, present yourself to them, and offer your sacrifices which are required by the law so that it might be a testimony unto them. Unto who? The priests. A testimony of what? It's a testimony that the claims of Jesus Christ, of being the Messiah, were 100% correct. That he was truly Messiah who had come to set free those who were in bondage and who were captivated by sin and by infirmity. It was also required so that this person could be readmitted into the community and also readmitted into the cultic worship of the time. And so we see that there's what's required is also that according to Leviticus 14, they, this person had to have had ceremonial cleansing performed. Now what we know because of hindsight is that these ceremonies were but a shadow. And if they were shadows, there was something, there was a real substance that was casting that shadow. And that real substance is Christ. Just as the priest had to go and inspect the leper, and declare himself, declare this person to be clean. So does Christ act as our mediator who comes to us in compassion and with love and with the word he declares us to be cleansed. And just as like these animals who had to be sacrificed were offered for the cleansing of the lepers, so is Christ our greater sacrifice. And he is the one who truly cleanses us, not of our infirmities alone, but of our deeper need to be cleansed of sin. And so we see that Jesus is fulfilling something great. He's not just performing a miracle. He's not just cleaning a leopard. He is showing himself to be greater than all of the ceremonies and all the priesthood that we see in the Old Testament. But not only that, but likewise, Jesus cleansing the leopard of his own will serves as a sign to the greater work that was to come in just a few years. Was the leper seen as a dead man? Yes, he was. But guess what? We as sinners were also dead in our sins and trespasses, according to Ephesians chapter 2. Just as the leper was seen to be, have been stricken by judgment of God, so were we struck with judgment and condemnation because of our sin, according to John 3, 17 and 18. Just as the leper was disassociated with the community faith, we also were alienated. We were not a part of this great covenant of people. Just as the leper was not able to participate in the temple worship, so were we unable to rightly worship God because we did not have faith. But just as this leper received faith after hearing of the good news of Jesus Christ and his ability to heal, so do sinners receive faith upon hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And just as faith had compelled this leper to draw near unto Christ for healing and cleansing, so are sinners drawn unto Christ after hearing of the good news of Jesus Christ. And just as the sinner implored, cleanse me, so may sinners now come before Jesus and say, Lord, I have need to be cleansed. Heal me, cleanse me of my sin. And just as Jesus was willing and he reached out and touched that sinner and and he made him clean of his leprosy, so does Christ still to this day clean sinners who have godly sorrow and come before him in faith, believing on his works, believing on his name, and he cleanses us of our sin and our unrighteousness. It is upon the cross that Jesus received 
our judgment. It is upon the cross that he received the wrath of the Father in place of us. He died so that we might live forevermore. And so the point of this narrative, this real historical cleansing of a leper, is to point us to the redemptive work of Christ to save sinners and to make sinners clean and acceptable before the Father. And that's a great thing to rejoice over because no one could do that, only Christ. Just like only Christ was only, the only one able to be willing to cleanse this leper, so was Christ the only one able to be willing to die in our place. He was only, the only one who was acceptable, who was right, who could do this for us. And in his death, we live. So Jesus has divine will. And we jump to the next verses and we observe how Jesus also has the ability to divinely forgive. Let us read verses 17 through 19. One day he was teaching and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him, but not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with a stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. And so we notice for the first time a group of people whom he describes to be scribes and Pharisees, teachers of the law, it seemed that that testimony that the leper provided was enough for the religious leadership to come and check out this person who claims to be Messiah. And we see also the progression of Jesus. Uh, he, throughout the narrative from chapter 1 all the way, it's, it's Jesus going out to the crowds, but then he gains popularity. Now the crowds come to Jesus, and now we have it here in this story that now the religious leaders are coming to Jesus. I mean, Jesus is making, a, he's causing huge waves. He's causing huge waves. And people are starting to really take notice of Jesus. But the Pharisees are not there with good intentions. And we're going to see how they are the real antagonists of the entire narratives of the gospel. They are coming and they're challenging Jesus and they're going to oppose him. And so we have here Pharisees and leaders who are really coming to inspect his works and his claims of how Jesus is coming to work in the power of the Lord. And then after we see how Jesus is working in the power of the Lord to heal, we observe this paralyzed man, and he's being carried by four men. And just as Luke showed that the leper was full of leprosy, we see that this paralytic was being carried by four men. He was completely immobile. He could not move. He could not do anything for himself. But in their determination to get to Jesus, despite the large crowds, we see their faith. We see that they go to the roof, they make this hole in the roof by removing tiles, and they lower this paralytic into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. I mean, they lost all sense of decorum because their main mission, their objective was to get to Jesus who heals. And instead of being rejected by Jesus, again, we see another collision of grace. But Jesus does something remarkable here. He doesn't just say, I heal you, get up and walk. He says, 
your sins are forgiven. He declared pardon of sins. And this is not a liturgical announcement. There are some denominations which provide an announcement of pardon of sin, and that's not what this is. What this is is that Jesus is of his own ability and power declaring forgiveness of sins. And this is something that no ordinary person can do. None of us are able to declare forgiveness of sins because we're not God. If I were to offend you, you have the right to forgive me. But if I offend your neighbor, you can't forgive me because you're not the one offended. Likewise, Jesus is pretty much saying that he has the authority and the ability to forgive sin as if he was the one who was offended by sin. And C.S. Lewis, pretty much, he commented on this. And this is what led him to think about how Jesus' declarations were significant. He wrote in in, in his book, Jesus told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. Yeah, C.S. Lewis totally understand what Jesus was talking about. He understood the claims that he was making. And even the Pharisees understood what Jesus was saying. And they were not happy with his declarations. We see in verse 21 how the Pharisees responded. They said, the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? What does it mean to blaspheme God? In a broad sense, it could be making little of how God reveals himself. And one of the common ways is to take the name of the Lord in vain, making little of his name. It's supposed to be holy and sanctified name and reverence. And when people misuse the name of God, that is blasphemy. And here, another way we see blasphemy is by Jesus taking on this divine prerogative of forgiving sin. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am God, and I can forgive sin. We continue reading in verses 22 through 25, where Jesus replied, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And just as a leper, all miracles point to a greater reality, a greater truth. By Jesus healing the paralytic, he was proving his ability to forgive sins. There is no doubt whatsoever now that the claims of Jesus Christ are 100% legitimate. Because how is it that he would be able to heal by the power of God's name after committing blasphemy? There's no way. God would not have honored that. He was working within the context and the mindsets of these people to let them understand that he is God. Imagine the scene. Everyone is in this house. And the light of day is shining through that hole in the roof, shining upon this paralytic. 
and before them is irrefutable proof of God's transforming power through this man who is God, Jesus Christ. And now you're left, these people are left with the question, what do we do? How do we respond to what we just witnessed? Well, as we read, the paralytic got up. He received strength, and we went home glorifying God. And that last verse tells us that the rest of the people, they were all struck with astonishment. And they began glorifying God, and they were filled with fear, saying, we have seen remarkable things today. And what is marvelous about this passage is not only that Jesus has the ability to make one clean by his own will, not only can he also divinely forgive men of their sins, but Luke does something incredible by showing us the unity of the Trinity. We just got done singing the creed that we believe in uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And Luke does a great job of exalting Jesus Christ, but not at the cost of minimizing the divinity of the Father and the divinity of the Holy Spirit. We have in our ancient creeds these things which keep us orthodox. We have in our creeds that reminds us that the Catholic faith or the universal faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. This means that if Christ is worshiped for the grace that we observe in his works, the Father must also be worshiped for the grace in sending Christ to heal and to forgive. And we must also worship the Holy Spirit for enabling Jesus to work in the power of the Lord. We cannot worship one and minimize the other two. And I think that's one of the problems of the Western church. We forget that we worship a trinity, a triune God who is in complete unity. In verse 17, we read how Jesus was in the power of the Lord as he went about healing. We must understand that in the way that Luke wrote this, when he wrote power of the Lord, the whole context of Luke tells us that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. We read in chapter 1, verses 31 through 35, of how the angel told Mary how she would conceive a child by the power of the Holy Spirit. We also read in chapter 3, verses 22, how the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus as he was baptized. We also observe in chapter 4, verse 1, how Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and he was led to be tempted of the devil. We read in chapter 4, verse 14, how Jesus was in the power of the Holy Spirit as he taught. And then Jesus himself said in chapter 4, verse 18, that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him so that he might declare good news. And so we see that when Luke writes about how he was in the power of the Lord, we're to understand this, that the Holy Spirit was with Jesus and was filling him, had filled him and empowered him to do all these great works which he had been doing. And so when we read of the power of the Lord with Jesus, we must also worship the Spirit for his power, for his enabling power, and for his ever-present ministry with Jesus Christ. And when we read of how Luke wrote that people were glorifying God, it'd be, we, we should keep in mind that Luke uses the term God to refer to the Father. And so they were glorifying the Father. The paralytic got up and he glorified God. And what does it mean to glorify God? 
It doesn't mean that we could add glory to God because God is infinite in glory. In fact, the prophet Isaiah, when he saw the Lord in the throne, he saw the whole scene where angels were crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. But when we glorify God, we are using our words and our actions to speak of the greatness of God, of the wonders of God, and the honor that's due to God. And so when people went home glorifying God after being healed and seeing these amazing things, they were praising the Father from whom all blessings flow. And furthermore, Jesus' work of grace changed the crowd's emotions for the gracious Father whom they served. The crowd was struck with astonishment at what God was doing through Jesus Christ. That means that they were in a state of distraction from all of the things, and they were just beside themselves. They were beside themselves as they saw the works of Jesus. And they were also filled with fear and with reverence because they had seen things that were never seen before. In fact, the word there in Greek is paradoxos, which means when we get our word paradox, they saw strange things that they had never seen before. All of this to say that the leper and the paralytic experienced a collision of grace with the triune God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so C.S. Lewis noted how we are required to abandon all patronizing nonsense of exclaiming Jesus to be only a good teacher. We can't think that. We're not left with that option. He is either God in the flesh or he's a liar or lunatic. And that is what we have to wrestle with. But after going through these verses, I, I, it's very clear that Jesus is who he claims to be because he has a divine will. He has divine authority to forgive and he works in divine unity with the Father and with the Spirit. And not only that, not only does the text tell us, but we ourselves have experienced the grace of Jesus Christ. We've experienced the grace of the Father and of the Spirit as well. We've experienced this because it tells us that God, in Ephesians chapter 2, God the Father, He sent Christ to die on our place. It was His work of grace in choosing us and to, and to, and to bestow upon us the grace of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but we experience the Jesus of Christ by being pardoned of our sins and being forgiven. And we experience the grace of the Holy Spirit by being assured by faith that we are saved and forgiven. And so how are we to respond? The scribes and Pharisees accused Jesus of blasphemy. They accused them of blasphemy. But there was another group of people who went home glorifying God. And we ought to be careful because we have warnings in Scripture of how, although you might think you don't blaspheme God, but you might cause others to blaspheme the way, blaspheme God by our way we live. And so our aim should be to live in such a way that we glorify God. We glorify Him. We glorify His greatness. We speak of His wonders through our words and our acts. And if you notice, the friends took this paralytic to Jesus to be healed. They were not silent. They heard the good news. They believed on Jesus Christ, and they took their friend to go see Jesus. 
And that should encourage us to speak well of Christ, to speak well of what he does and what he's able to do for sinners like, like us and share our faith with others. Not only that, but we should ponder on the works of our triune God. Just as the people were amazed and astonished at the works that Jesus was doing, we should also, we should also recapture that amazement and wonder of what God has done for us. I think when we lose sight of what we have been saved from, we lose that astonishment and that wonder. So it's good to remember. It's good to remember what did God save me from and where am I now? We're in Christ Jesus. We're saved from the wrath of God and now we are united in Christ Jesus and we're made acceptable before the Father. And furthermore, we should also have a sense of fear and reverence for God just as like these people did. What does it mean to fear God? That we hold him above all else. That we love him above all else. And so what we do is we hate sin. We hate our own sin. And we ask God to cleanse us and to make us right before him and to transform us by his grace. We repent of that sin. We turn away from it and hate our sin and follow Christ. And this is how we respond to the grace of our triune God. We glorify him. We're in love with the wonder of being accepted in Christ. And we reverence and fear him in the way we live. Let us pray. Almighty Father, I'm grateful for your work. We see the triune work of our God in this passage, and we're reminded of how you, O oh Father, loved us with an eternal love. We love you, Jesus, and we worship you because you saved us. You did for us what no other person can do. And we love you, Holy Spirit, because you sealed us to that great day when we are caught up with you. And we praise you and we worship you. And Father, we ask that you would just touch the hearts of people, that they might believe on Christ Jesus and they would confess him as Lord and King of Kings. To you, O oh our God, be the honor, glory, and praise. Amen.